All right, well, let's go ahead and find our seats and jump into the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. And I've entitled our sermon this morning, A Tale of Two Sons, because the parable of the prodigal son is really broken up in two parts, the younger son and then uh, the older brother. And so for the next two weeks, we'll be moving through the parable that way. Today is part one. Just a quick word about the parables as we move through the Gospels and we see these parables that Jesus gives. Um, what's interesting is that uh, in the world of the first century that Jesus lived in, there, it was an oral culture. So people told stories about their history, uh, about God, about their faith, and parables have this power to, to convey a message because the the lesson is embedded in the story. And so, as I read through the parable of the prodigal son, I just thought how genius it was of Jesus to tell parables. Um, and the fact that he was so young, he was in his early 30s, and every time he had a challenge, he had these ready-made parable responses on hand, to me is proof of his divinity. Because there's just no way I could do that. You know, my wife says, Jordan, did you pick up, you know, milk on the way home? And I forgot. And I said, Maribel, let me tell you a story about this couple, you know? <laughs> like, I, I mean, it's just brilliant. It's genius the way he was able to respond to challenges and to teach lessons with these stories. And the parable of the prodigal son is one example of that. As we finish up the book of Luke this year, we're going to see more examples of those parables. But it's just brilliant that he had these these dozens and dozens of ready-made stories to tell for each unique situation. So let's, let's read through um, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to read in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and then 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jump down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The King James that I grew up on said, in riotous living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Quick side note, the pods... The word in Greek is the word for um, carob pods. So when you're walking on the sidewalk and you see those brown kind of crisp uh, pods that have fallen on the sidewalk, that if you step on them, they're crunchy. That's exactly what those were. They're called carob pods. And he wanted to feed himself on those things, which would seem to us inedible. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older brother, his older son, excuse me, was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. I'm reading beyond the story now. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes... You killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. Let's pray. Father, we pray, O God, that we would find a resonance in this story, our own forgiveness, and the love, O God, that you have so graciously poured out in that you forgive sinners like us and celebrate over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, books and doctoral dissertations have been written about the parable of the prodigal son, or it's, you could say, the parable of the two brothers. That's another way to describe it. And the imagery is famous. Rembrandt, one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings is actually a painting of the parable of the prodigal son. You can look it up when you leave. Don't look it up now. But you can look it up when you leave. And it's a picture of a son in ragged clothing on his knees, hugging the legs of a father and a brother standing off from a distance, looking on. But it's famous, famous parable. It may be Jesus' best-known parable. And for good reason. It's only found in Luke's gospel, and it carries incredible theological freight. This parable, it's rife with theology and teaching for what it means to know God as sinners and receive and experience his forgiveness. And the parable is given in response to the legal experts and the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus is celebrating over these people who are far from the kingdom coming back. And Jesus essentially gives this parable as self-justification for his actions. So you can think about if you saw maybe 
your pastor or one of the elders sitting down in the inner city with a prostitute or a gang member or a drug dealer. The first thing in your mind might be, what's that all about, right? And so the religious leaders who, far as they understand Jesus, he's supposed to be a religious leader, a teacher of the law of Moses, and instead of hanging out with the religious crowd, he's hanging out not just with unbelievers, but he's hanging out with what seems like to be the worst of sinners. He's hanging out with people who are apparently far from the kingdom. And it says in verses 1 and 2 that the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And what follows, and we skipped it from verses 3 to verses 10, Jesus gives two smaller parables, one about a shepherd who has 99 sheep, but one of them is lost, and he leaves the rest of the sheep with guardian and he, guardians, and he goes and he finds that one lost sheep. And then there's another parable of a woman who has 10 coins, silver coins, but loses one, and she flips the house upside down and to find the one lost silver coin and then rejoices with her friends that she's found the one lost coin. And in verse 17, Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this is a picture for us into the heart of what gives God joy. We often don't think about that. What gives God joy? What makes God happy? We know what makes us happy, right? We all have different things that we like to do, different things that cause our hearts to rejoice. But we often don't stop and think, what actually makes God happy? What are the things that causes the heart of God to exult and to rejoice? What gives God joy? Well, God is never more joyful than when a sinner repents. God is never more joyful than when a sinner repents. And what's instructive for us is this. Even the worst of sinners, like this prodigal, can be forgiven. And this is what Jesus' ministry is all about. It explains why he receives tax collectors, who are certainly violators of the law of Moses, right? Tax collectors presumably were unjust. They took money from people. They pocketed money they weren't supposed to keep. They took more taxes and collected more taxes than they should have so they could, they could get rich, and they were working for the, the Romans. They were working for Gentile, heathen, pagan unbelievers. It wasn't that the tax collectors weren't guilty. They were certainly guilty, according to the law of Moses. And the Pharisees had every right to think that the tax collectors were bad guys, and they were. The same thing goes for this other category of sinners, which included prostitutes and all types of different people. It wasn't that these people were somehow sinless and the Pharisees were thinking they were guilty when they weren't. These people really were guilty. They really were sinners. They really were violating the commandments of God. But this is what Jesus' ministry is all about. He is celebrating the return of those who got lost. That's an interesting way to think about sinners, people who are lost. We, we think of it in a religious way, right? Lost means they're not going to heaven, but this idea of having lost your way in the world, in God's world, in God's divine economy of 
humanity and human existence in the world in the created order, sinners are people who have lost their way. To be on the way, on the right way, or on the right path means to know God, but not knowing God means you've wandered from the path. You're lost. Jesus is celebrating those who are lost being found, like the sheep or the silver coin. Now, one of the difficulties we have in understanding this parable today in its original context after 2,000 years is the fact that this parable's been domesticated. It's been romanticized, idealized, and maybe misappropriated. It's a popular parable, the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, we all know it so well, we probably don't know it as well as we think we do because we think we know it well. So I want to update the story for you. And I'm going to read a modern-day version of the parable of the prodigal son by author Philip Yancey, and it's called The Runaway. So for a few minutes, I just want you to listen. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside I hate you. She screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit... She concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And she was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like, and she makes money on the streets. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. And occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears. Nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody rats on each other in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She works the streets a little, but money goes to support her habit that she's developed. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. 
She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She tucks her legs underneath the newspaper she's piled atop her coat, and something jolts a synapse of a memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, Michigan, when a million cherry trees bloom all at once, and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between, between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her, her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have just waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God, she thinks. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins the memorized speech. Dad, 
I'm sorry. I know, he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. And so it is with God's amazing grace. God welcomes and receives us who are unworthy, who don't deserve forgiveness, back into his arms. You know, the parable of the prodigal son, like this story, is radical, but even more so. Because it's not the message, just the message that God forgives sinners. Even the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day believed that God forgave sinners. That's not the issue. The issue is not just that God forgives sinners, but rather that God makes an effort. And that's what Jesus' actions are all about, that God makes an effort to reach out to not just sinners, but the worst of sinners. People who seem on the surface not just a little far away from the kingdom, but people who are the furthest away from the kingdom. The word prodigal, if you're not familiar, if you don't know, it means wastefully extravagant. The prodigal son was wastefully extravagant with the money received from the father. And this is a radical story, not only in its portrayal of the son, but also of the father. Both of their actions were shocking to a first century audience for a few reasons. I'll go through some of these reasons. As we read through the story, we saw the younger son asked his father for an untimely inheritance. And if you know anything about the first century, to ask your father for your inheritance before he, while he was still alive was essentially to wish death upon your father. Now, most noble men in those days would have given their son a swift smack across the mouth for a statement like that. But this father allows the indignity... And not only that, but he obliges his son. To cash out his younger son's inheritance would, meant, would have meant liquidating some of the property. Again, this is an agrarian culture, and the older son would have received two-thirds of the father's property, and so the father would have had to liquidate and sell off at least a third of his land, which he and the rest of his family were living off of its productivity. So that would have immediately decrease their own wealth. The son cashes in. He takes all he has, all he's received from his father. The father allows this indignity and this shame to happen to him without, without any recourse, without um, any action. That would, another, that would have been another shock to the first century hearer or the first century mind of a story like this. How could this father allow this indignity allow this shameful behavior to be carried out by the son. And the son takes all he has and he moves to a foreign country, which in the mind of the, a Jewish person in the first century would have meant that the son went to the land of you know, heathen peoples, pagans, Gentiles. And the son's request is a full-on rejection of his family. We think he just wanted some pocket money, some spending money, but that's not what it was. He, he was essentially rejecting his entire family. 
And he goes to a far country and he squanders it all on loose living. And this is where the sin intensifies. The enormity of the son's insult has just been ratcheted up to the level of a crime. Because it's one thing to take your inheritance early and all of the implications that that meant, but then to take it all and to squander it and waste it all on partying and loose living. This is where the, someone hearing this would have really just thought this was just incredulous. right? A son like this was not only not worthy to be called a son any longer, but in the sensibilities of people in the first century, the household um, honor and shame structure in the first century society was so severe that the penalty for children, even adult children, dishonoring their parents was death. That was the penalty in those days. You dishonored your father, you were worthy of death. Doesn't mean someone was always executed, but they were certainly worthy of it. And a famine falls on the land right around the time he runs out of money, and now he's broke and he's alone, and he finds himself in need and hungry, and none of his party buddies are there to help him out. You know, it's like that saying, everyone's your brother until the rent comes due. He's all alone. He's out of money, and he's out of friends, and he's out of luck. And if this isn't bad enough, his next action demeans him even further. He gets a job taking care of pigs, swine, which are filthy animals in the sensibilities of a first century Jew, because, of course, swine is forbidden not only to eat, but to touch and to be around. And so this, this younger son has stooped to the very lowest levels. And he's hungry, and he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. But Jesus is up to something in the way he tells the story. He is presenting an image of not just a sinner, but the ultimate sinner. A prodigal son is not just, you know, a boy who got flipped with his father, made a few mistakes. This is the epitome of a sinner. This is the, an image of the ultimate sinner. Someone who, whose behavior was disgusting and despicable and depraved in the mind of people listening to Jesus' parable. But God, Jesus is also giving us a picture of how God sometimes brings people to repentance. Out of money, he's out of luck, he's out of friends, and he hits rock bottom. And sometimes God allows that in our lives also when we sin. I don't know about you, but I have had moments in my, over the course of my life, especially since I've been walking with the Lord, where I've rebelled so severely that God allowed me to hit rock bottom. You know, it's something about, I don't know, the good life that makes it hard to repent when things are good. Because invariably, we assume that my good life corresponds to my good heart, right? And I, it, it must be things are, are well, things are good. So in, in other words, if he didn't run out of money, it didn't mean he wasn't sinning, but God allows him to, to hit rock bottom, runs out of money, runs out of friends, has no recourse of action. 
He's hit rock bottom. And it's in this darkness that he comes to his senses. This is the fulcrum point, like the young runaway trying to sleep on the streets of Detroit in the winter. The sense of realization, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? My father was an alcoholic for 10 years, and I remember him telling the story about the day he got sober. He said that the consequences started to outweigh the enjoyment of the pleasure of being drunk. But when you're in the habit of drinking regularly, it just becomes something you do, something to numb the pain, something to take the edge off. But he said the consequences started to outweigh the pleasure. He was starting to get arrested. He would get DUIs. Uh, um, Jobs, he worked for himself. Jobs would fall through because he'd walk into the building with liquor on his breath. And he said one day, his marriage was falling apart with my mother, and he said one day he woke up and said, why in the world am I still doing this? I mean, something just snapped. It just clicked in 1987 for him. He came to his senses. He had a self-realization. The prodigal son is here at very rock bottom, and he says, what in the world am I doing? It's better back home with my father. He starts to appreciate the magnitude of his sin and how far afield it's taken him from his father's love and home and all the good things that were there. Verse 17 says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it's in response to this that the father's radical extravagance is on display. Some theologians have rightly observed that this story could be called the story or the parable of the prodigal God or the prodigal father. Because prodigal, again, means wastefully extravagant. And we're about to see the father's extravagant, lavished love poured out in response to this undeserving sinner. He arose in verse 20 and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father kissed him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And kissed him. You know, noblemen in those days didn't run. Noblemen wore long robes because to run would mean to pull up your garment and and, and be embarrassed by your long, skinny legs and your ankles. In fact, the priests, even when they were in the temple courts ministering, were not allowed to pull up their robes even though the ground was soaked with the blood of sacrifices because it was a shame to do so. Their robes were soaked with blood at the bottom and hem of their garments because it was just unseemingly. It was not something that men did. And so there's another indignity for the father running to the son, shaming himself for the sake of this reunion. In verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And this is the point Jesus is making overall. He's justifying his behavior by sitting with and eating and receiving tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And the overall point is that it's the very joy of God. The very thing God celebrates is the receiving of lost sinners back to himself. Now, what does that mean for us as we think about our calling as Christians in the world? The Great Commission, what it means to proclaim the power, the saving power of the gospel in a world where people are lost all around us? It means recognizing that God longs to celebrate. God invites us into that celebration of repentance when people come back to him. But for that to happen, the gospel has to go forward. For someone to repent, they have to hear of the saving power of God. And you know, one of the reasons why why people don't come back to God, we just assume that all of the rank sinners in our minds, so fill in the blank, to 21st century, we have new categories of depraved sinners, right? They're not tax collectors anymore. In fact, that's probably a pretty good job, you know, nowadays, work for the IRS. But we have our own categories of people who we think are depraved, miserable, wretched sinners. And we just assume that their hearts are hard towards God, when in reality, like many of the people in the first century in Jesus' day, they knew they were sinners. There was maybe a low-frequency level of conviction in their hearts and all they needed to experience. And this isn't true for everybody, but this is true for some people. All they need to experience is the loving embrace of one of us, sharing the saving power of the gospel with them. You know, sinners believe it or not, know they're sinful. They may not always confess it. They may suppress that knowledge, but if you think of yourself and your own sins, sin has a way of eating at you. It eats at the heart. Why do you think the suicide rate is so high among people of certain types of lifestyle? It's not because we don't live in a tolerant community. It's because sin eats away like a cancer at the heart. When we have unconfessed and unrepented sin, it, it, it's, it's just debilitating. And so to hear words of forgiveness and the idea that God not only offers forgiveness in the gospel of Christ, but forgiveness to the most rank sinners, the worst sinners, people who on the surface are furthest from the kingdom, And this is Jesus' self-justification. This is his self-justification over celebrating with these sinners. And if you believe that the worst sinners among us can find forgiveness with God, it's easier to love them. Like this prodigal son in the mind of the Pharisees and the legal experts, they probably were feeling by the end of the parable hatred for him. But the idea that, that no sin is too great for God to forgive and that God welcomes the repentance of sinners and returning back into his fold, that ought to create in us a love for sinners, a love for people. But if you believe that someone is beyond redemption, 
It's not only harder to love them, it's easy to hate them. And this is what Jesus wants from each of us. He wants our hearts lining up with his own heart to embrace the lost, to recognize ourselves in the story of the prodigal son, lost, depraved, unworthy of the Father's love, but yet receiving God's forgiveness because each one of us here has received it or can receive it. And God, finally, God is prodigal also in this sense, wastefully extravagant in lavishing his grace on unworthy and undeserved people like you and me. He extravagantly loves. He extravagantly pours out his forgiveness. He extravagantly shows grace, and he wants us to also. Let's pray.